We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Verses 1 through 18. Again, that's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord, we need you this morning. There are a thousand needs represented uh, in this room today. And one man-written sermon cannot meet them all, but your word can. And Holy Spirit, you can use your word and you can use the efforts of mere men to minister in many, many different ways. And so I, I ask that you would. Lord, would you water the hearts of those who hear your word this morning so that seed sown in weakness may be raised in your power. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So if you haven't turned there already, John chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. And as you turn there, I'll just say in in recent weeks and recent months, I've been forced to reckon with my own weakness and insufficiency and inadequacy in just about every area of my life. As a man, as a husband, and dad, as a pastor. And so when I got to work on this sermon and I thought about what I have to offer uh, by my own resources to prepare a sober and edifying and hope-filled Advent sermon, I come up totally empty. But as my estimation of myself and my own worth decreases, my confidence in Christ remains totally unshaken. Indeed, as my estimation of my own contribution decreases, my estimation of his worth and his glory and his loveliness actually increases. And so I can't do much, brothers and sisters, but I can call your attention to the excellencies 
of one who can do much. I am not worthy of worship, but I can direct you to the one deserving of all worship. I will fail you, have failed you in many ways, but I can say with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is safe. He will never fail you. He will never forsake you. His treatment of his flock is always perfectly firm and authoritative and gentle and wise, never failing and always and in every respect good. So I can call your attention to him. And as Pastor Ronnie reminded us last week in his farewell sermon, we as a people will never find ourselves engaged in an activity more worthwhile than getting an eye full of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. That's all I have the capacity for this morning. I long to be nothing more than a pointer to hearken your attention, attention to the excellencies of Christ. We read in verse 14, we have seen his glory. And that's all I want you to do this morning. I want you to see the glory of Jesus in seven respects. First, Look at verse 1 with me. See the glory of his timeless eternity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word whom John reveals in this prologue to be Jesus Christ himself, capital W, Word. This Word did not originate with the beginning. The Word, this Word, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, existed already in the beginning. Outside of time and space, outside of limitations of finitude and created existence, was already the Word. He was. The Word was. He does not change. He does not come to be. He does not exist on the same plane of reality as that which lives and moves and changes. No, He exists as the timelessly eternal One. The now that he occupies is a timelessly eternal now. He does not exist within a moment. All moments exist within his will. He does not exist within space. All space exists within his will. Brothers and sisters, do you see the glory of his timeless eternity? It is an incomprehensible glory that we don't even have language for. We come to the very limitations of speech when we try to describe the when of this word. He is the one who was and is and, and is to be. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He always is. And friends, this does not mean that he is static or immobile or cold or lifeless, as if change were required for him to have life. No, the opposite is the case. His life is limitless his life is a limitlessly active now. He does not change, not because he is lifeless, but because his life is so fully and purely active that he cannot be more than he is right now. All that he is for us, therefore, is all we could ever need. The Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss described God's eternity as, quote, that attribute of God whereby he is exalted above all limitations of time and all succession of time, and in a single indivisible presence possesses the content of his life perfectly, and as such is the cause of time. In the beginning was 
the word. See, brothers and sisters, and behold and adore the glory of his timeless eternity. Second, see the glory of his co-equal majesty with the Father. Look at verse 1 with me again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, if you find yourself scratching your head at the grammar of this verse, then John's mission is accomplished. It's supposed to stop us dead in our tracks. So don't shrink back from the linguistic tangle that is this passage, brothers and sisters. The confusing grammar is intended to teach us something. You see, with pitiful, limited, time and space-bound creature words, we're, trying, we're using the finite to, to grasp and paw after the infinite. In the beginning, this word was. In the beginning, this word was was with God. And in the beginning, this word was God. There is unity here. All that is divine, this word is. The son we worship is divine. His nature is the nature of the one undivided, simple essence of God. To be the son is to be the one and only God. And yet, distinction without separation is also posited here. The Word, the Son, is God, and yet the Word, the Son, is with God. That is, with God the Father. He is God, and He is God with God. See the glory of His authoritative, co-equal majesty with the Father. See it, adore it, worship it, and let the mystery of this doctrine flatten you in humble reverence. Friends, You cannot comprehend this in an exhaustive way. You can't. But you can't comprehend it in an exhaustive way, not because he is less than comprehensive, but rather because he is infinitely more. We reverently confess with the Athanasian Creed of the early church, which says in part that we worship the one God in Trinity and Trinity and unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit, still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory, equal. Their majesty, co-eternal. The same confession goes on to say the Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. And the word, says John, was with God, and the word was God. See the glory of the Son's authoritative, co-equal majesty with the Father. Third, see the glory of his creative work. Look at verse 3 with me. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, if we had any doubts that John was impressing upon us, impressing upon our minds the Son's divine nature, those doubts are laid to rest right here. Why? Because here we see the Son credited for that which only God is to be praised. Only God is to be praised with creating the world. And yet, here the Son is credited with that activity. By beginning his gospel with the words, in the beginning, John is 
hearkening us back to the opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there in Genesis, we read about the all-powerful, effortless majesty of Yahweh to create out of nothing, everything. He just speaks and creation exists. This kind of creation is altogether different than anything that you and I experience. We create, but we create out of that which already exists, don't we? We create houses out of timber and drywall and cement. We create paintings out of paint and canvas. Even people on the physical dimension are made out of the reproductive contributions of a man and a woman, a seed and an egg. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. There was nothing there. And he made everything. His speech brought into existence all that exists. He spoke time and space into existence. He spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. And John tells us, so we read, he speaks the earth into existence. He speaks the cosmos into existence. And now John tells us that the word was there. That was him bringing all of that everything out of nothing. We learn from John that the Father's creative speech is a who? The word. This is why when we confess when we confessed with the Nicene Creed this past summer, we said, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. We went on to say, of this same Son, by whom all things were made. Nothing, brothers and sisters, nothing that exists, exists apart from the Son. He brought it into existence and he continues to sustain its existence right now. The second person of the Trinity, this person, to be creation, in other words, is to be the craftsmanship of the Word, the Son himself. If all reality is divided up between creation and the Creator, between the made and the maker, you can be certain that the Son lives on the Creator side. Your heart continues to pump blood through your body because Jesus tells it to do so. He's telling it to do so right now. His providential control, that is coming from the Son. That's coming from Jesus, the one who died, who we worship. He is keeping the cosmos into existence. The chair that you're sitting in, that you're sitting on, continues to hold your weight because Jesus tells those atoms to hold together. He's keeping the molecules of the wood of this pulpit together. He's directing coffee as it makes its way through your stomach into your bladder. He's making sure that your eyelids continue to blink and moisturize your eyeballs. And he's keeping the molecular structure of your tears together to make sure that your blinking is effective. He's doing that. The Son is. Jesus Christ. The early church father, John Chrysostom, puts it like this. Not only did he himself bring them out of nothing into being, and by them he means everything, the cosmos. So not only did he himself bring them out of nothing into being, but he himself sustains them now, so that were they dissevered from his providence, they were at once undone and destroyed. In other words, if he stops speaking, the universe falls apart. 
Or would that we all be amazed by the Son's creative agency. See the glory of his creative work forth. See the glory of his divine life. Look at verse 4 with me. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life. I want you to contrast the use of that word life with the creation of man in Genesis 2. When we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He became a living creature when the breath of life was breathed into him. He was not a living creature until that moment. But this is not so with the son. You see, he never became alive. In him was before and outside of time and space, life, life itself, the divine life, the overflowing, lively life of the eternal God was in the Son. And this life and light, John tells us, enlivens and enlightens everything else that exists. We get our life from his life. You see, all our life exists by Derivation, it depends on God. It derives itself from God's life. Our life is contingent, but his life is independent. The theological word for this is aseity. His life is ase, or of himself. It does not depend on anything or anyone. It is an overflowing plentitude of maximally burning vitality. That is the son's life. His life is the life of the triune God, which flows eternally and the pure now. This life is eternally flowing as the Father begetting the Son and the Father and Son breathing out the Spirit. This calls our mind to that doctrine we grew so accustomed to hearing about this past summer, doesn't it? Eternal generation. Do you remember that word? Don't forget it. John 5, 26 puts it like this. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is why we confess with the Nicene Creed to believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all the worlds, light from light, very God from very God. He is God from God. He is life from life. Again, guys, we, we are groping here. We're groping after eternal things with limited speech. We want to preserve the mystery of the triune life with language that is fitting and worshipful. We're not trying to explain it away. We're trying to preserve the mystery for our worship. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father. So because he is begotten, he is what the Father is. Since the Father is God, he is God except his reception of life never begun. It is timeless. It's eternal. He is the eternal word of the eternal speaker. He is the eternal son of the eternal father. He is the eternal wisdom and power of the eternal king. He is the eternal radiance of the eternal glory. He is the eternal image of the eternal God. The father was never without his son. The divine king was never without his wisdom and power. The glory was never without his radiance. He is God with God. With all these biblical pictures, 
We grasp at a divine mystery that is beyond our comprehension, but not beyond our worship. He is blissful in the timeless eternity of his own divine life. And we worship him as he invites us into that blessedness. We'll see more on that later on. But for now, just see, brothers and sisters, the glory of his divine life. Fifth, see the glory of his condescension. This is what we're here for. Advent, isn't it? See the glory of his condescension. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Look at verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Behold the glory of his condescension, brothers and sisters. This light came into the world. He became flesh and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us without leaving any of his glory behind. Now how do we know that he, he retains his majesty and his glory? Well, Because we say with John, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. He can't show us the father's glory if he left it behind. But without leaving it behind, he became a man. By the miracle of the Holy Spirit, he was conceived in the Virgin Mary. He was made like us in every respect, yet without sin. Friends, whatever it is to be a human, Jesus is. Whatever it is to be a human, in its essence, Jesus is. He is key. This glorious second person of the Trinity came to us in humility. Behold the scandal of the incarnation. Behold the lowliness. He was not incarnate in the womb of royalty. Think about that. He wasn't incarnate in the womb of royalty. He was incarnate in the womb of a teen mom from a hick town that no one thought much of. Listen, friends. No matter how, how primitive we think that ancient Palestine was, they knew that virgins don't conceive. So just think about that. Think about the reputation for Mary. If she wasn't despised before her conception of Christ, she certainly was after it. Right? That unwed teen mom from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the womb that the Son of God inhabited. God Almighty sent his angelic host as heralds, not to the nobility of this world, but to the lower class shepherds. Smelly shepherds that no one thought much of. Friends, even if they were to run through the streets of Jerusalem announcing the good news of the arrival of the Messiah, no one would listen to them. No one wants to hear from them. And then Jesus was a vagabond. He said, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have their holes, but according to Jesus, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. That first air that he breathed with his own human lungs outside of the womb of Mary was filled with the smell of animal dung. And that smell was a sign of more things to come. He was the, the baby that was laid in a feeding trough. He was a slot bucket savior. And that was a sign of more things to come. 
Throughout his life, he would associate with prostitutes and poor fishermen and tax collectors. He would accomplish his saving work to defeat sin, Satan, and death, not in some impressive display of grandiose power, but rather by dying a shameful death on, by crucifixion on a Roman cross, naked and dishonored. Why do I mention all of this? What does this mean for us, friends? It means that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. It means that we are never too far gone, too low, too despised, too dishonorable to receive the saving work of this Christ. The infinite one became a finite infant. He came low, brothers and sisters. He came so low that he can fetch now the lowest of the lowest of the low. We cannot be too low for this Savior. He came in humble birth, which means no one is too low for this Savior. See the glory of his condescension. And yet, friends, we must not move on too hastily. We're not done with this point yet. Let's continue to marvel a bit longer on the glory of his condescension. Because as he descended in this paradox of mystery, he left behind none of his glory. He brought it all with him. Somehow, he was able to come in lowly form and still retain his glory. Think for a moment. Just think about this. Think for a moment about everything that we've seen up until now. All the different aspects of of the son's glory that I've been calling your attention to. We've seen the glory of his timeless eternity. He never changes. He is always. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is he is the one who, who was and is and is to come. So we've seen the glory of his timeless eternity. We've seen the glory of his co-eternal majesty with the Father. We've seen the glory of his creative work, and we've seen the glory of his divine life, this purely active life. We've seen the glory of all of these things. Now question, were all of those things still true for him when he walked this earth 2,000 years ago as a human being? We saw, for example, we saw that creation, for creation to exist moment by moment, is for creation to exist moment by moment by the divine son. He holds it in existence. So if this is true, then who held creation in existence while the divine son was enfleshed on earth? The answer is the divine son, the very same person. You see, when the son assumed a human nature, he did not leave behind his divine nature. The eternal son of God, whom we worship, dwelt and tabernacled on this earth. Yes, he assumed a human nature, but he was not circumscribed by this human nature. He exceeds. The second person of the Trinity was no less than an infant that first Christmas morning, but he was most assuredly infinitely more. This is why the fifth century statement On Christ, the Chalcedonian statement includes these crucial claims. Listen to this very carefully. Listen. It says, we confess one and the same Lord, one Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. It goes on to say this begotten before all the ages of the Father according to the Godhead, 
And in these last days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Two what's and one who. A divine nature and a human nature. So when we ask this question, who died on the cross? The answer is the Son of God, Jesus. That's the who of that answer. Who died on the cross? Jesus, the Son of God. And when we ask the question, who who is eternal in his perfect, unchanging life? The answer is the same. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we ask the question, who, um, when we ask the question, who changed and grew as an infant human being? The answer is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then when we ask the question, who remains immutable and unchangeable forever? The answer is the same, the Son of God, Jesus. This is what we worshipfully extol when we confess the hypostatic union. What does that mean? It means that we confess that there is one person in two natures. He, the Son, died in his human nature, and he, the Son, remains timelessly eternal in his divine life, in his divine nature. He changed in his human nature, and he remains unchangeable in his divine nature. Listen to the way that John Calvin communicates this point. He says this. This is beautiful. The Son of God descended miraculously from heaven, yet without abandoning heaven, was pleased to be conceived miraculously in the virgin's womb, to live on the earth and hang upon the cross, and yet always fills the world as from the beginning. Christ exceeds. Christ is more than his human nature, not less. See, brothers and sisters, the glory of his condescension. Sixth, see the glory of his revelation. Look at verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son, full of grace and truth. Now look down at verse 18 with me. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he hath made him known. Because the Son did not leave his glory behind when he was incarnate, he is able to translate divine glory into flesh and bones. He's able to translate it with language and visuals that we can understand. He reveals to us the glory of our triune God as a human being. He translates incomprehensible and infinite splendor into comprehensible and finite form. The fourth century church father Athanasius says this brilliantly. I love this quote. He says, For since human beings, having rejected the contemplation of God, and as though sunk in an abyss with their eyes held downward, seeking God and creation and things perceptible, setting up for themselves mortal humans and demons as gods, for this reason... The lover of human beings and the common savior of all takes to himself a body and dwells as human among humans and draws to himself the perceptible senses of all human beings so that those who think that God exists in things physical might from what the Lord wrought through the actions of the body know the truth and through him might consider the Father. 
What's he saying? He's saying that God, recognizing our inability to lift our gaze up from the created order to the heavens, came down from heaven to the created order to stand at our eye level. He says, since human beings couldn't seem to stop worshiping creation instead of the creator, the creator, without ceasing to be the creator, became a creature to accommodate their limitations. This is what I do when I'm trying to get my son's attention when they're making a mess or preoccupied or throwing a tantrum or something. What do I do? I drop down to my knees. I get my eyes at their eye level so that they can see me. That's what God does for us in the incarnation. He stoops. He makes himself available. And in this way, he becomes intelligent enough, intelligible enough for us to worship him. In the person of Jesus, just think about this for a second. In the person of Jesus, we have access to the God who dwells in inaccessible light. In the person of Jesus, we approach the inapproachable. See, brothers and sisters, the glory of his revelation. Seventh and finally, see the glory of his salvation. Look at verse 12 with me. But but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look at verse 16 with me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. All of this incarnation was for us. It was for our salvation, brothers and sisters. In his incarnation, Christ was assuming a human nature for us. Not only so that he could represent God to us, revealing for us the incomprehensible majesty of God, but also so that he could represent us to God to bring us into fellowship with the Father again. He came as the second Adam to succeed where the first Adam failed. He came to offer an atonement for our sin. That's why he came. He came so that he could live and so that he could die and rise. He came to offer an atonement for our sin. He came to achieve a perfect and sinless obedience so that he might impute that to us who come to him by faith. In faith alone. He came as a human to pay a human penalty for human sin and to win a human righteousness for a new humanity that he invites us into. He came to man to bring man to God. That's why he came. This is the glory of his salvation. The second person of the Trinity invites us into the bliss of God's own blessed life. It matters. It matters that we confess everything that we've seen this morning and not merely part of it. It matters because if Christ is not divine, then our worship of him is blasphemous. It is a wicked evil to worship a creature. All of us here that dwell on the cre- uh, on this side of the creator-creature divide, all of us who dwell on the creature side, have an obligation 
to worship our Creator. And if Christ does not fit that bill, if He does not fit on that side of the Creator-Creature divide, then what we are doing here week after week is a horrifying blasphemy. There is nothing on this planet more despicable than creature worship, which is what we would be doing here if Christ is not divine. And yet, if Christ is not human, if Christ is not a man, then his life and death and resurrection for us mean nothing. They mean nothing. Because we need human atonement. We need human righteousness. We need a human resurrection to follow. Francis Turretin puts it like this. He says, the work of redemption could not have been performed except by a God-man, associating by incarnation the human nature with the divine by an indissoluble bond. For since to redeem us, two things were most especially required, the acquisition of death for the satisfaction and victory over the same for the enjoyment of life. Our mediator ought to be God-man to accomplish these things. Man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to receive the punishment we deserved, God to endure and drink it to the dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming. Man to become ours by the assumption of the flesh, God to make us like himself by the bestowal of the spirit. This neither man nor God alone could do. For neither could God alone be the subject of death, nor man alone conquer it. Man alone could die for men. God alone could conquer death. So see the glory of his salvation, brothers and sisters. See this glory and be grateful. When was the last time you were just grateful for your salvation? Grateful that you are a Christian, that you continue to be a Christian today that you woke up this morning still believing, that's a miracle. So be grateful. Be grateful that the triune God has, has acted not only to create us, but also to redeem us. He swallows us up into his eternal love. Guys, this is a God that we can lay all of our crowns before. We can lay all of our crowns before this lovely Savior. He is worthy of all your worship. He is worthy of all your devotion. He is worthy of all your allegiance, Christian, the glory of this Christ is unfading. He never diminishes in his majesty and he invites you to come to him continually. He invites you to sit like Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. He invites you to sit at his feet and learn from him continually. He invites you to simply come continually to receive his goodness. So never grow tired of him, brothers and sisters. Never take your adoring gaze away from him. Nothing else is worthy of your devotional attention. And friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, and you find yourself on the outside looking in on those of us who are in communion with this incomprehensibly glorious person, I want you to know that you are invited to come on in. If you're there in the snowy cold, looking in through the window, watching us sitting by the piano, singing Christmas hymns with hot chocolate, you need to know you can come on in. The, the, the invitation is for you to come in. And it doesn't matter, it does not matter if you feel low. It does not matter if you feel 
like you have rebelled for too long. It does not matter how unfit you think you are. It doesn't matter if you think I'm too dirty. My clothes are too dirty. Jesus Christ will remove those dirty clothes for you and give you his own spotless robes of righteousness. The Savior came in lowly form so that you could receive him. So come to him with the empty hands of faith. Come with your nothing so that you can receive the fullness of his life. Leave behind your pitiful aspirations. Leave behind your guilt and your sin. Drop it and come to Jesus. He invites you to do so. And yes, if you're wondering, I have been so authorized to speak on his behalf. As an ambassador of Christ, I implore you on behalf of Christ, as if God is speaking through me, be reconciled to him. God made Christ, who knew no sin, become sin for you so that in him you might become the very righteousness of God. You were invited to take him by faith. You're invited to take him by faith as the believers in this room continue to take Jesus by faith with this meal of communion. We do this every week here at Emmaus. And if you're not a Christian, please don't presume to take this meal with us. I know it's awkward. It may be awkward to stay in your seat while we get up and move around you. But I'm fond of reminding us here that this table is Christ's family table. And you're invited to come here. You're invited to come here to Christ's family table, but not by climbing through the window or sneaking in the back door. Before you can be welcomed to sit at Christ's table, you have to come into his house, be greeted by him, so that he can sit you as a beloved member of his household. And you can do that today. You can come to him today by faith. Come to him to receive forgiveness of sins and new life. He's eager to answer those kinds of prayer requests. His heart is fundamentally generous. So come and take Jesus this morning. Please let me know if you have any questions about what that means or if you would like prayer. I'm going to be standing over here on the side during communion. I would love to pray with you and answer any questions you have. And Christian, not only has the word become flesh to dwell among us, but he also dines with us. Now listen, not only did he do this in the flesh with his disciples 2,000 years ago, but he continues, he continues to do so by the Spirit with us today. God's word tells us, God's word tells us that as we eat this bread, an emblem of Christ's body, and as we drink this cup, an emblem of his blood, we are, get this, participating in Christ. Wow. That is unbelievable. Somehow, supernaturally, when we come to this table with our hearts lifted in faith to Christ, the Spirit of Christ facilitates communion with Jesus here. He nourishes our faith. All this we can do because the Son of God was incarnate 2,000 years ago. He sanctified physical, created things like bodies and water and bread and juice. So come with confidence in Christ, brothers and sisters. Come with expectation to this table. Come in full devotion. Come with thanksgiving for your salvation. Come and let us adore him. I'm gonna pray and then ask for the believers to come down. You'll come down, uh, exit to your row, to my left over here, receive hand sanitizer, and then get the elements, and you'll return to your seat along this aisle to my right over here. Let me pray for us. O triune God, you who are the fount of all beauty, 
you who inhabit your own eternity, which is marked by blessedness inexpressible. We thank you for the incarnation. Father of lights, thank you for sending your light in the flesh. Revealing spirit, thank you for illumining our vision to behold beauty in flesh. Dear Jesus, thank you for receiving your glory, the glory of the infinite trinity to our unworthy eyes. Please quicken the eyes of our minds and our hearts to apprehend with gratitude and wonder the eternal loveliness revealed in the incarnation. For you, Jesus, have accommodated heaven for earthlings like us. In the incarnation, you have made invisible glories visible. So grant us the privilege of beholding your beauty in the pages of your holy word and now at your blessed table. Continue to draw the adoring vision of more and more eyes to you. Please, Lord Jesus, make friends out of rebels even this morning. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.